This is the Front Page Podcast from the Red and Black. I'm Alex Antioch, bringing you our Women's History Month special edition episode. Today I'll be speaking to Lily Kirsch about her article on the history of discriminatory rules for women at UGA and the students who paved the way for a more equitable future. Then, Libby Hobbs will discuss her article about the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shooting. Finally, Maddie Brechtel will give us the details of her profile on Naoko Uno of the band Calico Vision, vaccine researcher by day and psychedelic rock musician by night. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. um, So why is it important to talk about women's history at UGA? I think it's important to talk about women's history in any institution of higher education because um, in the past, women were not really as much included in education and did not have as many opportunities as we have today. And we might forget about that sometimes, but really um, 100 years ago, it was a lot different for women, especially women who were pursuing an education. And while there's still obstacles today, we've come a really long way. And I think it's both interesting and important to look back at that history. Yeah. Um, What makes Women's History Month this year particularly significant? Well, this year marks 50 years since um, Title IX passed. So this summer will be officially the 50-year anniversary of Title IX. Title IX was um, an education amendment that passed that uh, made it illegal to discriminate based on sex at a um, federally funded institution. So that effectively made it illegal to discriminate against women. And while that didn't change everything right away for women at UGA and women in higher education. Uh, It did a lot. So celebrating 50 years of that is super important. And um, just a few years ago was 100 years since women were first allowed to enroll at all. In 2018, that was the 100 year anniversary. So this year it's important because we're celebrating 50 years since Title IX. Yeah. In your article, you discuss some of the discriminatory rules um, women experience that were different than those of their male classmates. Could you tell us about the restrictions and challenges women at UGA have had to overcome since 1911, and how have they faced these issues over the last century? Uh, Yeah, so since probably 1918, since that was um, the first year that women enrolled at UGA, Um, So it's like a really long history, of course, it's about 100 years. Um, Well, actually, relatively, that's kind of a short history, but um, it's a lot of ground to cover. But uh, in the early years of female enrollment at UGA, um, there was a lot of very strict rules that kind of governed student life for women. Um, And this was kind of under this legal doctrine called um, en locus parentis. (laughs) which basically meant that the university could make rules for women in lieu of their parents or for students in general, for that matter. So a lot of these rules were small things like how women could dress or how late they could be out, um, how long their phone calls could be. And some of them were quite 
trivial and I think we would find them a little funny today. Um, so there were like codes of conduct that would say that women had to have their hair done in public. They had to be in skirts. They could only wear shorts in certain areas, doing certain activities, even sometimes in certain rooms within a building. Um, there would be restrictions on what women could and could not wear. Um, so some of those rules kind of mark like the early history for women at UGA. Then later, um, women overcame a lot of obstacles. Women of color um, first came to UGA in the 60s, in the early 60s, with trailblazers like Charlene Hunter Galt and Mary Frances Early. Um, and they overcame, you know, both obstacles from the fact that they are women and because of their race. So that was um, kind of a double intersectional challenge that they faced and that they um, overcame by enrolling at UGA, graduating from UGA. Um, and then even in the 70s, going into like athletics and sports, uh, women in sports did not have the same access to um, funds, to um, to resources, to any of the athletic opportunities that men had. So um, overcoming inclusion in athletics was also a big deal in the 70s. Um, and that is when Title IX eventually passed. Yeah, you mentioned the stories of several trailblazing women in your piece. Was there anything you learned from them that surprised you? Um, so I interviewed a woman from the first UGA women's basketball team. Her name was uh, Gwyneth Bias. Um, interviewing her, I learned a lot. I didn't know that uh, how restrictive it was for women at first. Women were really either in education or in home economics when they first came to UGA at this time. So there was a lot of restriction on what majors women could um, go into. Yeah, I didn't know that like women couldn't even wear pants around campus or anything like that. And that um, only during like PE class could women even wear like athletic wear. I mean, think about how many times people wear athletic wear to class nowadays. In the 60s and 70s, you couldn't even go outside without like a skirt on. That was pretty weird. Yeah, the I think the detail that struck me the most in your story was the one athlete who had to wear a raincoat over her gym uniform. Yeah, so even just to like leave the dorm, leave the house or whatever, you had to wear a certain jacket and a certain skirt. And that's just kind of funny to think about now. I was wondering uh, if in the course of your research, you came across any information about what attending UGA was like for LGBT women in particular? Um, so there's not a lot of information or data on um, LGBT statistics or enrollment or anything like that. Um, in fact, UGA didn't publish enrollment data specific to like characteristics of the student body until 1976, and it did not include information about LGBT women um, or anything like that. So really, we don't know, which is kind of hard to think about because that a lot of that history just like isn't recorded or it's not easy to access. Um, so unfortunately, we don't know like the whole story of like when the first transgender women 
attended UGA. We just don't really know. And um, I think that's one thing I didn't know that when I was researching this was just like how little the university recorded that kind of information. But I think those stories are definitely out there and uh, we just kind of have to do some digging to find some of those, some of that information. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. Um, I also thought it was really interesting that UGA didn't really publish that much data about their students until. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even today, uh, the university doesn't publish data based on race and gender. So there's no data on like how many black women attend UGA, only how many women and how many black students there are not um, the intersection of those identities. So we don't really know. Yeah. Um, and kind of speaking to that, another thing I found uh, that really stood out to me about your piece was how you described the challenges that Black women faced at UGA and how those were often greater than those of their white classmates. And I was wondering if, um, based on what you just said, if you could speak to what intersectionality is and why it's important to discuss when talking about history. Uh, yeah. So when different um, parts of your identity combine to make a unique experience that's like intersectionality. So um, one person I mentioned in my article is Nawana Miller. She attended UGA in 1973, um, and she was a black woman at UGA. And um, when she attended UGA, this is only like four years after the university desegregated, um, there was only 10 black students on campus. So not only is she a woman in the early 70s, you know, when female enrollment was quite low um, in proportion to male enrollment, she was also one of the first uh, black students at UGA in like some of the first few years of desegregation. Um, so it's important to talk about intersectionality because um, it brings up a lot of aspects of someone's experience and it helps us understand how um, multiple identities can coexist and can create um, difficult situations in history and how these women overcame a lot of obstacles um, in different ways than white women might have experienced them. Um, and for black women at UGA in the early history of desegregation and everything, um, not only were they pioneering for their race, they were also kind of um, in the early years of female enrollment. So Noana Miller, for example, faced a lot of discrimination um, and she uh, really was very brave. And the quote that I, it, this was from a oral history project from Hargret Library. Um, and in my article, I added this quote, which is that, um, I went to Georgia one way, I graduated another way. I went as this naive young girl. I came out of Georgia as this strong, independent African-American woman who had been through hell and there was no other way to describe it. Um, so that's what she said in the oral history project. Um, and yeah, I think we can learn, learn a lot from these women and learn just how much they had to overcome, how brave they were and how much they contributed to the university that we know today. Next, Libby Hobbs will join us to discuss her article about the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings. Hi Libby, thank you so much for uh, joining us to discuss such a heavy topic. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, um, events like Women's History Month are often portrayed as celebrations of how far society has come, but we felt that it was important to talk about why Women's History Month is so important and what challenges and discrimination people still experience today. So to begin, um, would you mind telling us about what happened on March 16th, 2021, and why this tragedy was so painful for Asian women in particular? Yeah, Um, So on March 16th, 2021, um, a man shot up three spas, one was in Ackworth and two were in Atlanta, and eight people died. And the reason why this is so important for Asian women in particular is because six out of the eight people that died were Asian women. And so it just goes to show the stereotypes that Asian women have, the fetishization of Asian women is still present today, and that's why this topic is still ongoing. And we are recording this episode a few days after the one-year anniversary of the shooting. Could you speak to what has changed since it happened? Yeah, so I think it really depends on who the person is, right? Because every person has different experiences. So the people that I interviewed for this article had different experiences than I did. But I would say a general consensus is that there has been more awareness to um, this topic of Asian hate because more people are talking about it since March 16, 2021. However, there hasn't been much more action. So while people are possibly more aware, that's even debatable, um, people still feel like they have a target on their backs. They still feel worried to go out um, because of the experiences that are continuously in the news. Um, As you might know, just the other day, an Asian woman was punched over 100 times and kicked. And so these things are still happening. So while there might be more awareness, I think a lot of people are still scared, especially Asian women. And a lot of people are still feeling the grief of March 16, 2021. Yeah. And what do the people affected by this feel needs to be done to improve conditions right gosh um a lot of people say the first step to making change is conversation i think a lot of people in the asian community want that awareness to be consistent they don't want this awareness to only happen around march of 2022 they want it to be year long and to have actual change not only do you need conversations but you need representation. We need to lift Asian voices, especially Asian women and our elderly, and educate the community about the Asian culture and let people know uh, how the, the shootings affect Asian lives today. So I think talking about these experiences, listening to people, starting those conversations, but making that a consistent part of daily life is what needs to happen for there to be true change. Yeah, and kind of speaking to that, how have UGA students responded to this tragedy? Yeah, so the Asian American Student Association, I reached out to them because I was curious if they were doing anything. And Annie Lee, who is the president of this organization, she told me about how they included a post on their Instagram, and they also will include something in their newsletter. Additionally, on their first meeting back on March 24th, Um, they were going to hold a moment of silence for the eight people that died. 
Uh, she really told me about how their purpose is to educate the UGA community. And so that's a year-long process, right? And so while, you know, they wanted to make sure that this day was honored and that this day was talked about, they also wanted to focus on continuing that and making that a year, uh, year-round discussion. And additionally, the Students for Socialism hosted a um, Stop Asian Hate and Stop China Bashing event. And so they hosted a guest speaker named Sheila, and she came and talked about her experiences and really talked about Asian American history. I went and attended that event, and that was really interesting because, again, starting this conversation is also knowing our history. And so I thought it was really important things that a lot of people don't know about today. What can we do to be allies and help uplift um, people's voices? Again, I think this is another question that it depends on the person Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people have different experiences. So my experience is that um, I'm a Chinese adopted Asian American (laughs) Um, and I live in a white family. So I was part of transracial adoption, which means that the adoptee is a different race than their parents. And so what things that I might want to hear are a bit different because growing up, I never really felt connected to the Asian community because I grew up in a white family. Um, I basically felt like I acted white. I really just didn't feel Asian per se. But as I grew older, I started experiencing the same racism that other Asians experience, you know, mocking of the eyes, um, ching chong, like stuff like that. And so things that I would want to be told um, from an ally perspective are just like, hey, you know, we're here for you. If you ever want to talk, I'll be here to listen. Um, But I think other people... They probably want to hear similar things, uh, to be honest, but I just, I honestly don't know. I feel like I can't answer for other people, but for myself, I can say that people uh, showing that they're an ally to me is just something as simple as like, hey, I'm here for you if you need to talk to me. One thing that really stood out to me about your article was your deep dive into history. And I was just kind of wondering, what is the context for the activism that people are participating in in response to this? Um, So something that a lot of people know about is the model minority myth. And this is a myth that is generally put onto Asian Americans. And it's that we're the, like, it kind of is in the sentence of model minority and the stereotype that we work hard and that we get things done or hardworking and like, you know, all of these other kinds of things, but it perpetuates that we're a minority. It doesn't ever say that we assimilate into society. And what that also implies is that other minorities aren't hardworking. They aren't able to assimilate into American life because they're lazy. And that just perpetuates a lot of racism that we see today. So that's one thing that is mentioned. Something else that is mentioned is the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, This was in the 1800s, um, and Chinese people were excluded from immigrating to America because they were taking up a lot of jobs on working in trains and railroads. And then something else is the Japanese internment camps. Um, And this was where Japanese citizens were placed into different areas around World War II, and the living conditions were absolutely terrible. Um, So they were forcibly removed, and so that's another example of history where Asian Americans were targeted and removed from society. And something else that Sheila mentioned that I actually didn't know about was something called the My Lai Massacre. And this also happened on March 16th, but not in the uh, 2000s, um, where American soldiers 
invaded Vietnam and killed up to 500 innocent citizens. So just again, showing that Asian Americans have been targeted um, and they are victims of hatred. In response to so much of the difficult and discriminatory history of what people of Asian descent in this country have experienced, um, I thought it was really interesting how you wrote about how Asians in America have worked with other groups to demand a more equitable future. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. So at the Students for Socialism event, there was a guy and um, he did his talk about the history of, quote, as he phrases it, Afro-Asian solidarity. And so something that he mentions is the history, like you said, of two groups of people working together. And so he talks about someone named Richard Aoki and Yuri Kochiyama. Both of them were Japanese-American activists, and Aoki was the only Asian-American to have a formal leadership position in the Black Panther Party, and uh, Kochiyama was known for being friends with Malcolm X. And so both of them were involved in the Black Panther Party, and so there is this history um, of Asian-Americans working with Black Americans, but also other ethnicities for uh, liberation. So, yeah. Yeah, and um, how does this reflect in the activism we're seeing today? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think March 16th, 2021 was obviously after George Floyd's death um, and the racial reckoning. I think the more movements you see rise today, for example, Stop Asian Hate, more and more minorities are coming together because it is about all of us working together to find true change. Our final guest this week is Maddie Brechtel, here to tell us about her profile of Athens musician and vaccine researcher Naoko Uno. Hi, Maddie. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me today. Yeah, so who is Naoko Uno? She's a really cool person. Um, I could not sum her up in a few words for sure. She's a musician. She's also a scientist, a researcher. Um, She's a lot of different people, I guess. But um, she, to me, is someone that I look up to, honestly. She's a hard worker. She's also creative. So she's a lot of things to me. Yeah. Um, what inspired you to profile her? Yeah. So um, I was actually sent her um, info from a person that I know in my sorority. Um, but she pretty much told me, you know, what she does. And when I heard that she was um, the leader of a rock band and also a scientist and a vaccine researcher, I was very intrigued. Um, so I think that kind of just drew me towards her and wanting to profile her for sure. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what brought Uno to Athens? Sure. Well, first of all, she she was born in Japan, but she actually has spent most of her life in Athens. So she kind of already um, thinks of Athens as her home. And so she's been here for a long time. She went to college in um, Portland and also had her master's there, but she came back to Athens after. So she's been here for a while. Oh, that's really cool. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about how she got involved in the music scene? Sure, sure. So from what I understand, 
her mom was a piano teacher, so she kind of began um, in her childhood doing music and stuff. She grew up doing um, theater, and then when she got older, I think she was drawn to the Portland music scene and their um, hard rock scene, I think. And so she was inspired by that, and she also um, came back to Athens for her PhD, and she realized all of her friends were in bands. So then she kind of got into the Athens music scene, but she's kind of always been there in my mind. Um, and also based on what she told me. So yeah, from I think just her childhood, she had an interest in music, but I think also it just kind of um, elevated in her college years and when she came to Athens as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that Uno does as an infectious disease researcher? Sure. So she told me basically she's been working at this UJ lab under um, Dr. Ted Ross doing vaccine research um, for the flu. So I think actually when COVID hit, that was kind of um, for them, it was kind of a good thing. They actually got to do a lot more research for COVID vaccines as well. So they've been doing a lot of COVID vaccine research um, as well as just flu vaccine research. Um, and they do like a lot of animal testing with ferrets and mice, um, but they do tend to focus, I think, on flu vaccines overall. And I was wondering, uh, could you please describe the challenges that Uno has experienced both as a musician and a researcher over the years? Sure. So she kind of told me um, that I think the biggest thing for her is time management. She's got both going on. She has um, beta practice after her full lab day. So it's definitely a lot. Um, but I think she said that's the biggest challenge is just time management and trying to manage, you know, she's in a band. She's also the um, a co-leader like leader of the Battle of, of the Bands here in Athens called Face Off. Um, but just kind of managing her time is the biggest challenge for her, I think. Yeah. Um, did she give any advice on like how, like clearly like she's doing it all, like how does she manage? I think for her, the most important thing is that she loves both of her of the um, parts of her life. So I think she has a big passion for both science and for music. So I think she kind of balances it out because she does have such a passion and love for both of them. Um, so I think that's the biggest piece of advice that she gave to me really is that she's able to fit both in her schedule because she does love what she does um, in both. And I think that kind of is the most important part um, of all of it, so. Yeah, um, kind of speaking to that, um, what about these two really different disciplines? Um, her role on stage, but also like in the lab, like what is it about these things that she loves that just keeps her going? Yeah, yeah, so. She said with, you know, the research lab, it's very much a sterile, clean, organized environment. So she has that, you know, um, for most of her day. But then she also, in the lab, she has her own work. It's very independent. She gets to do her own thing um, with her, whatever she's working on. And then you get to, the, you know, her music part of her life. And that's where the creativity is, the passion that's very much external, you could say. Um, so I think she really expresses that part of herself in um, her music life and her creativity and all that comes out and um, when she's performing and singing. Awesome. Uh, is there anything you learned speaking to her that surprised you? I think just that you really can do it all. You can really have both. I really didn't think that someone could do a, have a science job and then have music on the side as well. And she taught me that, you know, if you put the work in, you put in the time management, you can really have it all. And you can really do what inspires you, do what you love in your life. And it, it doesn't have to be just one thing. 
This has been The Front Page. The Front Page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. You can find the stories discussed in this episode in the paper edition, or on our website at redandblack.com. Make sure to download our app, keep up with us on social media, and check out our new health podcast, The Athens Frontline, hosted by health editor Simran Kaur Maholtra. We hope to see you next week.